Hi all, my name's Joe, and I love talking about what's going on in the world, with the exception, naturally, of Trump and Brexit. So I hope you'll enjoy hearing about some of the things that are a bit off the beaten track, and I also hope you'll enjoy me saving you the time reading about it. I'm planning to offer this in a slightly tweaked 5WH format. That is, what, who, when, where, why, and how. These are widely considered the key questions you need to ask to gain a simple but firm basis for further investigation. My hope is that this will give you a well-rounded, bottom-line, upfront grasp of a topic, and should also give me a bit of a handrail to avoid vanishing down too many rabbit holes. Also, I must be upfront, I envisage this podcast bouncing around the world a bit, so I must apologise in advance for the many mispronunciations which will follow. I assure you, any of them result from error, not malice. Similarly, my choice of naming convention will be based on common English usage. Please do not attempt to, to draw political inferences from my choice. With that aside, let's jump into it. So, jumping right in, what are we talking about today? The Sudanese government has secured a peace deal with rebel groups operating as the Sudan Revolutionary Front, representing a majority of groups that until recently were under arms against the government. This is not entirely out of the blue. It represents a further, if not entirely on time, step along a roadmap to peace agreed in concept in August 2019. So who are our main players? Well, let's start with the Sudanese government. At present, this is a civilian-military hybrid stemming from a coup which ousted Omar al-Bashir, the 30-year dictator of Sudan, in April 2019. It is presently headed by a sovereignty council which succeeded the military officers responsible for the coup in August 2019. Given this origin, it should not be surprising that military is heavily represented with five members of the council stemming from the military, five civilians appointed by the Forces for Freedom and Change Alliance, a civilian group, and one further civilian appointed by mutual agreement between the military and the alliance for a total of 11 members. The chairman is presently a military member, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Baran. Sitting opposite the government, we have the Sudan Revolutionary Front, or SRF. This group was originally founded in 2011 in order to oppose the former dictator Omar al-Bashir and resulted from the Darfuri rebels providing direct support to liberation and rebel movements in the south of the country. Key consideration and a bit of dramatic foreshadowing for later should be given to the fact that the front's foundation was delayed due to disagreements between the groups as to the role of Islam in a post-dictatorship Sudan. As a bit of a side note, as their role currently remains unclear, we also need to consider the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North. This group is led by Abdelaziz Al-Hilou. Uh, this is a former major player from the SRF, indeed one of the founding members, and it is currently the largest armed group avoiding the peace process. Its avoidance of the process, formally at least, uh, is due to alleged concerns and reservations over senior officials in the uh, on the sovereignty council who committed atrocities as members of the army under the Bashir regime. So moving on to when. The peace deal was signed 
on Sunday, 31st of August, 2020, and is intended, as far as I can tell, to enter force immediately, although it is likely that any uh, wider-reaching social policies and the appointment of members uh, to various councils will occur at a later date after some form of implementation period. More broadly, the military chair of the Sovereignty Council should hand over to a civilian in around nine months, and the transitional period expires in November 2020, hopefully culminating in Sudan's emergence as a democracy with a functioning constitution. So the next question is why? Aside from the obvious aim of reducing the direct effects of conflict, peace is seen as an inherent prerequisite for Sudan to address its extensive list of dilemmas both internally and on the international stage. One apparent example of uh, the international nature of this peace uh, is that it may result in Sudan being removed from the United States list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, needless to say, that is not a particularly salubrious list to be attached to, uh, something that Sudan has resided on since around about 9-11. The prospect of removal from this list has risen following the visit of the United States Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, visiting the country. The potential end to this prior status would have tangible as well as moral benefits. Most predominantly, it may enable Sudan wider access to global trade and the potential in turn to leverage this access to improve the lot of its war-weary citizens. The value of this to a population which consistently ranks as amongst the most impoverished in the world should be plain to see. So, where? The deal was signed in Juba, South Sudan, Sudan's neighbour and the world's youngest recognised country, having become established only in 2011. The use of South Sudan as a neutral venue for the parties to negotiate is particularly of note given the emergence of South Sudan in 2011 uh, coincides with the beginning of the SRF's uh, uprising against Bashir and could be perhaps seen as the source of the movements that have led us to this point uh, sort of more widely. It's more specifically, the detail is anticipated to primarily impact the war-ravaged regions of Darfur, South Kordofan and Blue Nile regions in the uh, Sudan's south and west. However, the benefits of peace should be felt more broadly across the whole country. So now we come on to a bit of nitty gritty. How has this been achieved? Well, fundamentally, the treaty is one of power sharing with the cessation of hostilities traded in exchange for guarantees of influence in the transitional government. Signatory parties will be entitled to three seats on the Sovereignty Council, five cabinet positions, and 25% of seats in the national legislature, with individual groups gaining 30 to 40% of seats in their respective regional legislatures. So, at, at first glance, this appears fundamentally anti democratic. After all, this is the arbitrary assignation of political power and seats on the basis of. Uh, the, the threat to not use violence, or sorry, the offer not to use violence. It also appears more than a little bit like the system we're presently seeing in Meltdown in Lebanon, where various sectarian groups have had their power artificially balanced in the constitution. However, this needs to be seen from the wider perspective. 
the Sudanese peace process is envisaged as a three and a quarter year project, hopefully resulting in a constitutional democracy. So the assignation of power through this peace treaty is not the end result. It is very much a transitional stage and arguably a vital one. This, uh, this opportunity for armed groups to engage, to, to give them a seat at the table, is an essential step in securing sufficient peace that the transitional regime may actually survive to complete its project and in doing so produce an outcome amenable to the interests of the population of Sudan as a whole. Um, failure to engage with the SRF, perhaps from an ethical position of not wishing to speak to those using violence to undermine the government, would simply result in another rendition of something similar to the Bashar regime, a central government imposing its will on the surrounding area with little or no regard for the thoughts or democratic sentiments of the people living there. We can also take a bit of a broader look here. Um, as alluded to earlier, the government has fundamentally rejected the implementation of Islamic law as part of this deal. Uh, the role of Islam in a future Sudan has been an area of tension between anti-dictatorial uh, anti forces since at least 2011, and one of the last sticking points to be resolved in the formation process for the SRF. The delay exhibited then, and the fact it's in the peace treaty now, demonstrates that uh, this creation of a wall between religion and state is not desired by all, um, and it is unlikely that we'll see an immediate change to the function of society, particularly in more remote areas that uh, suffer from a lack of governance. What it will do, however, is provide some protection to the a bit under 10% of the population, which subscribed non-Islamic faiths, as well as potentially increasing the viability of international business in the country, um, as it will allow the creation of a separate, more independent and impartial legal system, although that is conjecture and hope and does remain to be seen. We can also see this as tangentially related to a series of significant steps to empower women in Sudan. Uh, as of uh, November, 2019, a series of laws that restricted a woman's freedom to move, work, study, and, and dress how they wish were revoked uh, as a significant and notable step in what I would consider to be the right direction. Um, in addition, and somewhat grimly, the practice of female genital mutilation, which sadly is widespread not only in Sudan but the surrounding region, was made a criminal offence in April this year and now entails imprisonment and a fine. Some may argue that the uh, the measures taken are perhaps not sufficient and we, we have yet to see any uh, significant proof of these working out in practice, but ultimately enshrining it in law is always a first step and one that I hold should be, should be held as a welcome gift. So I guess that concludes my whistle-stop tour of the Sudan Peace Treaty. Um, if you liked what you hear, and would like to have more brief snapshots into global events, I please like and subscribe as appropriate. Um, all reviews and comments are deeply appreciated. And uh, I think on one final note, I think we can uh, wish Sudan good luck with the process. Cheers. See you soon.